and welcome to the Ashley Webster Experience. Thank you for joining us today alongside Brian Solomon and our special guest today, Pete Hexeth. You know him from Fox and Friends Weekend, but this man has led a very full, interesting life. He's now a, a commentator, a, a, a broadcaster extraordinaire. But Pete, welcome and thanks for thanks dropping for in me. today. Well, you forgot yeah. about Varney every week, too. We <laughs> well, get, uh, only I get when to you spend time us. with you. You can never forget about Varney. I'm just trying to take five minutes away from... <laughs> <laughs> from Mr. Varney, but listen, Sorry. no, 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 listen, um, you have an interesting background, there's no doubt, born in Minnesota, up in Minneapolis, cold country, Yep. and you go into the finance world, correct? After I did. You, you went to Princeton. Yes, sir. And then let's catch up from there. What did? What? Yeah, I went to, so I grew up in a small town, went to Princeton because I love basketball, they had a great basketball team, and uh-huh. I was good enough to make the squad there, sat on the bench for four years. But the more <laughs> useful thing I did there was I was in ROTC, which is how I found my way into the military. I almost went to West Point. Instead, I felt like I could play basketball at Princeton and do ROTC as well. Mm-hmm. So when I, I did a National Guard contract, and when I got out, my first job was at Bear Stearns. So I went to work at Bear Stearns. The Bear Stearns. May it rest in peace. Yes, God bless it. <laughs> I love Bear is. Stearns. Oh, my goodness. They, they And their culture was... You know, work hard, play hard. If you make money, you're here. If you don't make money, you're fired. Uh, it was okay. old school Wall yeah. Street. Yeah. Uh, and I loved that side of it, but I deployed twice while I was there. Uh, first, not some first in a way that I was not expecting to mm-hmm. Guantanamo Bay for a year with with an infantry platoon. You're down in Cuba. Down in Cuba for a year guarding, guarding prisoners, and there were 750 of them. Wow. Uh, so what that was, was that, what was that like before well, we move on? What was it was that 2004, like? 2005. So there were a lot of them there. The wars were just ramping up. Right. Uh, the threat level was still high, but it was also quite mundane. I mean, you're, yeah. you remember it's a, it's a prison and we were not the guards inside the cell blocks. Right. We were doing towers and gates, quick reaction force when things got out of control, patrolling special different transfers of people. So managing, uh, you know, 40 guys from New Jersey who were in the middle of their own life disrupted down there and right. you could have beer because it's Cuba right. uh, was a nice it was an interesting leadership challenge I'll put it that way but it reaffirmed for me that these guys that were there they want they want to kill Americans every chance they get. We Did were you have much the, exposure to the to the sure, prisoners themselves? Absolutely, and they would taunt our guards and yell at the guards and In say, "I'm going to find you." Well, I'm going to find your family, and you know you're going to lose. Yeah, that's why we had to cover your name tapes and make sure they knew as little information as possible about these guys. And I had one in my platoon who spoke fluent Arabic, and he would so I'd go up in his tower often, and he would translate mm-hmm. for me what he's hearing and what they're saying and. You know, a lot of it's basic stuff of they're in prison, yeah, but a lot right. of it also is taunting toward the Americans saying someday, you know, coming to get you someday we're coming to get you. Uh, so and then I, when I went back to Bear Stearns, then three or four months later, I volunteered to go to Iraq with the 101st Airborne as a platoon leader. I was not made for finance. Uh, no, gosh. you, you, you realized wasn't. it by then. <laughs> I realized spreadsheets were not my thing. Iraq but, looked more appetizing than, than actually, the financial world. It actually did in a weird way. <laughs> That's interesting. But only because I watched what was going on on TV and the war was becoming unpopular. And I yeah. felt like if I can contribute something, now is my time to do it. Right. And I linked up with a great unit. And it was uh, you know it was a year that changed my life just like thing, deployments change a lot of people's lives. Fort and, Campbell, Kentucky, 101st Airborne. 101st Airborne, yeah. And uh, we were I was a platoon leader for six months. And then I did like... Uh, relationships with the local Iraqi government for about five or six months. How frustrating was that? Amazingly frustrating, although it was also fascinating in that because we built such strong relationships with certain people, we became kind of a mini intel cell. 
and we led to a rolling up of a big part of the insurgency in Samara, where we were. Was it what you thought it would be? You saw it on television. You said, I need to go over there, do my part. Um, what was the biggest surprise to you when you got there? Biggest surprise was the complexity of the modern battlefield. I mean, not that it was a surprise, but you you start to realize how hard it is to sift mm-hmm. through friend and foe and civilian and opposition. And do you go too far? Do you not go far enough? But I left that country. It was right when I left in 06. I left quite hopeful that we could win the war. And that was right as the anti-war movement was ramping up. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got involved with advocacy is I linked up with a group called Vets for Freedom, which is an Iraq and Afghanistan vets group. And we basically made the case that said we need if we have the right strategy and enough troops, we can win. Mm. But that was countercultural to everything going on in the States at that moment. And thankfully, George Bush announced the surge and Mm -hmm. we became advocates for that. And with a better strategy and more troops, we crushed the insurgency. I mean, Iraq Mm. was a war that Mm -hmm. if you don't if you remember Joe Biden in 2010 said Iraq will be one of the biggest foreign policy successes of the Obama right, administration. Right. I mean, that's how successful it was. And so what I what I learned there was Iraq had the seeds for civil society. A, they had a dictator, but they had a generally educated population mm-hmm. that could read, write, and do arithmetic. They had a history of a central bureaucracy, a, a centralized government, mm-hmm. an economy that could move beyond just oil but had oil as well. All the ingredients that Afghanistan never had, which is why right. I always had more hope for Iraq than Afghanistan. Um, and I, and I, I, I had, so I went into Afghanistan when I deployed there six or seven years later, optimistic thinking, Hey, we could use what we did in Iraq and do it in Afghanistan. And then it was like, yeah, nope, not going to happen. So I actually went from pessimistic to optimistic, optimistic in Iraq and in Back Afghanistan from optimistic to pessimistic. But the Brits are tried, the Russians are tried. It's a very mm-hmm. difficult part of the world. And I mean, that must be discouraging knowing that. You know, you leave Iraq to go to Afghanistan. There's a six-year gap. I get that. Yep. But you go to Afghanistan thinking you got all this experience from Iraq, and it just didn't apply. It just did not apply. And I was a, I was the senior counterinsurgency instructor at our schoolhouse where all – not all, but most American units went through allied units to get mm-hmm. kind of the last information they needed about the battlefield. So my job was to say, here's what the enemy's doing. Here's what the insurgency's doing. Here's what your region uh, is focused on. Here's your mission set. And – it just it became clear this is biblical times with AK-47s and cell phones. Yeah. The Taliban uses the old adage, you know, you have the watches, but we have the time. They're telling all the locals, work with the Americans now, and you might be safe now, but when they leave, you're dead. Uh-huh. So there was a shadow government and a sat- shadow allegiance to the Taliban. You couldn't trust your Afghan security partners because half, mm-hmm. you know, not half of them, but a good chunk of them had an eye toward the Taliban with our right. with us heading for the exits. So it, it becomes difficult to. Im- optimistically teach the next folks coming in while you're behind the scenes quite skeptical about the whole endeavor. Yeah. And that's why I've been, I mean, I think Afghanistan, we should be limiting our scope as much as possible. I mean, now we're negotiating with the Taliban, which is right. Would have been unforeseeable. You'd think in 2002 or 2003. And there we are. So after Afghanistan, you come back a little disillusioned, I would imagine, you, you know, amazing experience and, and, um, certainly a lot of time for reflection. What do you do then? Well, I'll tell you one one thing that Trump has hit on that I was first uh, exposed to in Afghanistan was the NATO alliance mm. and what it means. You know, you go to the headquarters in uh, Kabul and there's 50 flags and it's beautiful and there's this big alliance. You know, everybody's yeah. there. And then you go out to the battlefield and you're like, where's the alliance? <laughs> I mean, we wore these patches. Cheering you on. Well, exactly. We wore patches that said ISAF, which is International Mm. Stability and Assistance Force. Uh, And we used to joke that, no, that actually stands for I Saw Americans Fighting. (laughs) 
You know, and all these flags, mm-hmm. all these countries. We had Mongolians on our base who were part of the coalition. Yep. We gave them the Humvees that they had, and they only used them to drive uh, from uh, like 100 meters from one base to another in an entirely secure location so they could go to chow, so they could have dinner. Oh, my God. I mean, they didn't do anything outside the wire other than Was check a box. Was that true for, for almost all the countries? Not all of them. The Brits went out and fought. The yep. Australians went out and fought. The Canadians, where they could, would go out and right. fight. So I don't mean to demean every no, portion no, it's of just... the coalition, but their caveats were heavily restricted. They couldn't do yeah. much. They didn't have many people there, and they didn't have the support of their political leaders back home. Right. And so your, your, your hands are tied. The warfighters want to do it, but the politicians won't let him. So when Trump makes an argument about the NATO alliance in a larger sense of paying up, I saw it. And what good is an alliance if people won't go to war with you? I'm so glad that he did that. It's not that, a real that, thing. That moment on the, the tarmac, it was in Brussels or somewhere, where oh. he had them all lined up and he said, hey, time to pay up your fair share. And there you had Merkel and Macron looking like little guilty little school children yes. looking at their shoes. And I thought this was so long overdue because he's absolutely right. And he viscerally gets the things a lot of us have experienced. And that's why average folks, whether it's working people or military people, resonate with the truth that he speaks. Because politicians normally hem and haw and hedge. He doesn't do that, as you know. Right. Uh, so I, when I came back, I, I went to graduate school did that um, to you buy went to some Harvard? time. I did, yeah. I'd like to give my degree Princeton back. Princeton and Harvard. I'd like to give my degree back. Though. An Ivy League man. Yes, he uh, is. I prefer not to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> listen, it was. Listen, I'm grateful for it, but when you look back at those institutions and what they're teaching people, mm-hmm. I mean, forget about it. They're gone. What they're teaching now or what they were teaching? I think both. Now it's just so much more uh, aggressive in, mm-hmm. in, a, in a narrative of ideological indoctrination, of groupthink. You can't be an outlier without being an outlier right? Uh, inside that place. So I, I, I didn't – at Princeton, I was a bomb thrower ideologically. I ran the Princeton Tory, which is a conservative oh publication right after 9-11. Right. Listen, I've been up in the middle of the night putting posters up on campus. Okay? Oh. I mean I've, <laughs> I've been up with some, some feathers, I'm telling you. <laughs> Pete Hexen. At, at Harvard, I did less of that because I had a yeah. family and I would, sure. just got back from war and I was just like, I just want to get done with this. But then I stumbled on a group called Concerned Veterans for America, which is another vets organization that I became the CEO of. And we grew it from – you know, five people to about 150 very quickly. And we led the charge for reform at the Department of Veterans Affairs, which is a place where everyone said you can't touch it, can't change it. Right. Too many special interests, the unions, the vets groups, they don't want anything to change. And that, that those to me are the most ripe moments for, you know, everyone yeah. who's been there is fat and lazy yep. and they think it's the, the issue is done. And we walked in and said, how about vets get a choice? How about how, that? How about single payer health care doesn't work very well? How about no socialism for vets? Yeah. Uh, and we won the argument in a way that they've since admitted. And then Donald Trump got elected and he said, hey, those reforms sound great. Let's do it. Uh, and the whole Trump thing's a whole nother so story. How's that going, tell. Pete, do you think? Uh, you know, I think he, he, he did great out the gate. The problem is he had Shulkin. His first VA secretary was fighting against him. Right. Um, second one, has Wilkie, has been much better. Good. Uh, and the, prob- the only problem he's facing right now is he's given choice to veterans. But the lag time of the reality of that choice is long. So he's tweeting about vets now have choice. The reality is the new choice program doesn't even kick in till June 6th. And even then, the VA is working against it. So you're starting to see a bit of a divide between what he's saying and the realities that some vets are facing. Which is the reality of how government works and doesn't work and how to reform it. It's a long, drawn-out process. of bureaucrats. And I've got friends in the middle of it right now. And without two or three people who truly are – I call them deep state warriors. Without a few people that know how to fight bureaucrats, the bureaucracy will win. 
They know how to stall. Yeah. They know how to write rules. They know how to make it look like something's yes. happening, but in actuality, it's not. Mm-hmm. So you're going to get real reforms, but it was a knife, a figurative knife fight <laughs> all the way. And it will be through the gates. The VA is trying to fight it, all that stuff. So you did your, you, you did your military duty and then some. Then you come back. You got your education, Ivy League education, and then you get into the conservative voice business is what I like to call it. You just have a certain point of view. How did you get involved with with the Fox News Channel? You know, I was a commentator in my Vets for Freedom days and that was your first days. exposure. That was my first TV experience ever was in 2007 on Hardball with Chris Matthews ever. Well, that's a good way to it's begin. a way to start. Yeah, yeah. And my buddy who'd been on TV once, so he knew everything. <laughs> He's a Marine buddy of mine. He goes, hey, Pete, I got two pieces of advice for you. Lean forward because you look better than that mm-hmm. being slouched down. Yeah. And he said, don't let him cut you off. So I leaned forward. But uh, five and a half minutes later, I've been cut off 30 times. It's Chris, Matthews. Chris Matthews. That's what he does. That's what he does. But ultimately had to have been – and I was one of very few voices defending the Iraq war at that moment. So I did a lot of that. I did a lot of other shows. And then, you know, life happens. You go to grad school. You go to war. You do different things. I wasn't looking to make a career of television. And then when I came back from Afghanistan and did more with Concerned Vets for America and the whole VA scandal blew up of mm. the Phoenix VA and we yes. were a part of, of accelerating and amplifying that, the, the, the reality of it. I did more and more Fox and Friends. I did more and more other shows. And then one day Fox and Friends said, hey, have you ever thought about asking questions instead of answering them? And they, a couple weeks later, threw me on the couch on a weekend to guest host. And it must have gone okay. I think it did. Yeah. Do do you enjoy it? I I love it. I mean, listen, you know, they pay us money to talk. talk. I know. What are you talking about? Don't give it away. Don't tell anyone. It's not a real thing. But I've never done it because I want to be on TV. Right. I love this. Motivated by the issues. I love this country. And I feel like if they're going to give us a platform to advocate for things that matter, then I'm grateful for that. And, And, you know, it just so happens that we've got a great audience like the stuff you do, and the president happens to watch on occasion, and we can be a part of the national dialogue. And I've never once been told what to say. Like, I'm sure you've never been once told what to say. Never. And what an amazing blessing. And this place is a beacon. I'm on Fox, but I'm a fan of Fox. Yeah. In that Mm -hmm. I, I, I shudder to think where our country would be without this channel. It's a very good way of putting it, and and it's always surprising to me, and uh, and especially during Donald Trump's presidency, how far left the other. I wanted sometimes to give them the benefit of the doubt. I don't Mm -hmm. know why. I always thought maybe CNN can be at least somewhere in the middle. Okay, MSNBC, far left. I get it. I get it. You you find the channel that speaks to you, but I just realized a vast majority of mainstream media, in fact, if not all, are to the left. There's just no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. They're gone. And that was the brilliance of Roger Ailes, who came in and said there's a huge segment of this country that's just not being served, is not being talked to and talked about in the way that they understand. If that hadn't happened, you don't – I think likely you'd never have a President Trump. You have an inevitable sort of conquering of – of the deep state or the left or the administrative state or Democrats generally who had controlled all the all the levers before. It's a miracle any Republican ever got elected before Fox News Channel. And and when you look at the coverage of Trump, what's so fun to look at is it's actually they did a study in the first year. And, you know, it's like 90, 10 at CNN, right. 90, 10 yep. and MSNBC at Fox. It was 52 percent negative, 48 percent or one way or the right. other, 52, 48 it's because I think this is the closest place to true, fair, and balanced you're yeah. going to get. But you know what, yeah. Pete? When you talk to people out there, you get grief. Oh, Fox. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, it's all one way. Um, it's because they're you, told your that. state television. Yeah, I know that. Yeah. But, 
but it's annoying because if they really took the time to watch, to Pete's yeah. point, they would see it is fair and balanced, even though they just scoff. But compared to what the other channels are putting out, it's ridiculous. They, they, people always say that there's no journalism anymore in television. Right. Or especially people want to criticize Fox. Oh, there's no journalists at Fox. But mm. the presence of Fox allows there to be journalistic integrity because it's showing you the other side of what MSNBC and CNBC show. Yeah, because there's no Fox, it. there is no journalism because it's only one side by that you see on television. So, so every place out there has an opinion section and a news mm. division, right? Just like we do. Sure. Except if your opinion division is liberal, which everywhere else is, and then your journalists, who let's just be honest about the industry, Columbia mm. Law School, it's all center left. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if your instinct is center left and your opinion is center left, all of your reporting, quote unquote, is going to be left. At Fox, our opinion is center right. Yep. So it, even if our journalists are in the middle or center left, I'm not saying they are or aren't, they're forced to engage with the conservative side and the left wing side, which means you end up getting both sides. Mm-hmm. And so it's not fair to define us only by primetime. And I'm proud of our primetime sure. channels and all of our opinion shows. Absolutely. I think they're the best in the business. And look at the ratings. And look at the ratings. But I also look at our reporters and our journalists mm-hmm. and I say, these guys are calling balls and strikes They are in a way that other places just are not. I mean, it's it's the closest thing to the nightly news because those places are all gone. So it's it is a, it's a national treasure in my opinion, and and it's a total every time my every time I go to the building and my key card actually works <laughs> is a good day. The day it doesn't is the day you go. Uh oh. Uh oh. Uh, what did I say? It worked. <laughs> So, and I, you mentioned the president. You know, there is this sense of well, he only watches Fox News because Fox News says nice things about him and generally, you know, agrees with his policies, and that uh, Trump uh, has Fox News in his pocket. I don't think that's true. No, I don't think it's true either. I, listen, because I think he's he watches- done some battles with some of the personalities on Fox because he, they've disagreed with him. Ongoing battles. Uh, correct. Uh, and I think he watches the other networks because he does care what people say on mm-hmm. all sides. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think he's he people want to deride him for it. But it's very smart to be attuned to what the loudest and most powerful voices in your country are saying. And it doesn't mean he's doing what they're saying. It means he's channeling it. I mean, people forget that Donald Trump called into Fox and Friends every Monday for three years before the election. Yes. And you want to wonder how a guy like that gets um, faith, culture, middle America. Mm -hmm. It's engaging with an audience at some level, watching it and learning it. You don't learn that cloistering yourself up at Trump Tower Mm -hmm. and and all the business dealings he's had for decades where he interacts with regular people. He he has mastered the ability to use mass communication and marketing. Yeah, and I'm sorry, and he did it I don't the White House. I don't understand why people see it as such a negative thing that the president goes outside the White House, outside his advisors that he sees every day, to listen to the opinion of someone on television, on someone, someone on radio, or a guest on a show. Because mm-hmm. I mean, we vet people. You know, when we people put people on shows, guests, we know their background, we know what they're thinking, we know that there's somebody. So for him to take those opinions. If anything, I like that more because it's showing that he's taking the temperature of not just the White House. I just think he's he's been such a breath of fresh air. And I'll tell you why, because he tells you what he's thinking. He shoots from the hip. I don't have a problem with that. When he's coming out of the White House, walking towards Marine One to get on the chopper to go to Joint uh, Base Andrews, and there's the cameras there, nine times out of ten, he'll stop and take a slew of questions. Yeah. How many presidents before that had just waved and carried on? But he's engaged and he's transparent, which is why I like the tweets. I know people get upset, but he, from the very beginning, he understood the power of 
Twitter. I'm with you. I love the right, tweets. I say, right I say over the heads tweets. of the mainstream media and straight to his base Boom. who just read it, mm-hmm. and he can be real-time. He has, you know, listen, I, I, it's the most, I find his press conferences, yes, they're entertaining, but I just like, good for him. You know, he he says what a lot of people think and are too frightened to say. You're right. He he's he has he's brave. He doesn't care. He believes in what he believes in, and he's going to tell you about it. Exactly. That's who needs a press briefing when right. you are the press briefer. Exactly. And you can't. They can't claim he's not transparent oh. and willing to ask questions. I mean, no one has ever done it like that. But I'll tell you this: Ash, I didn't get it from the beginning. I was a Rubio guy to begin with. Okay. And then I was a Cruz guy because I wanted yeah. this sort of conservative, silver-tongued sure. indictment of Obama. And and then in came this bull in a china shop yeah. who I, who you don't we didn't really initially know what his ideological leanings were. He'd mm-hmm. been a New York City Democrat in the past. He'd flirted with different issues, but he had a pulse of what really mattered. And then we all over time had I call it your Trump conversion moment. <laughs> Where you're like, oh, I get it. Yeah. This is not an election about a little bit more marginal tax rates here no. or there. This is a cultural fight for the soul of America. Yeah. Like, do we stand for the anthem? Do we believe in borders? Do we support our cops? Do we want socialism or capitalism? Right. right. All, all this basic stuff. That, and then he hit unconventional issues like, listen, I was an ardent supporter of the Iraq war and believing that mm-hmm. we needed to win it. But if you step back. 16 years later and look sure. at the region, are Hindsight. we really better off right now? Than, if you're being honest about it, you, re- yeah. you say it doesn't take away from our war fighters or even the mission sure. to say that, well, maybe there's some ways we could have done it differently because we've got like ISIS and we've got all these right. really bad things that have, have, have arisen from it. So I, he knows how to question things in blunt ways that, that, that repulse people at times. But if you're willing sure. to listen, yeah. there's logic. And there's experience behind it. And he's changed the whole conversation from trade to immigration to everything else. All issues that used to be secondary now front and center. Now, you, if I remember rightly, you ran. You've actually run a campaign. I, I did run for you? office. When I came back. Uh, no. Yeah. When I came back from Afghanistan. Right. I moved back to Minnesota, which is my home state. And I briefly ran for the U.S. Senate. Uh, to run against Amy Klobuchar, oh. who's now a presidential candidate. Right. But I never got out of the Republican primary. primary. I didn't even get out of the Republican caucuses because you've got caucus states and primary right. states. The caucuses, we have a caucus system in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. It was kind of the Rand Paul moment, and I was not uh-huh. uh, their favorite. Right. I taught something in Afghanistan. 101 of counterinsurgency is know your terrain. Right. Human and physical terrain. Know what you're dealing with. Learn who the people are. And then I walked straight into a Senate race where I had no idea about the human terrain. And I just got blown over by the moment. And But you so, learned a lot, I'm sure, just in that moment. And so I ran for four or five months. My name was ever on a ballot, but we went to the convention. And the convention is where, uh-huh. in a caucus system, you choose right. your candidate. And we were hoping we would do okay. We came in third. Hey. Uh, got yeah. absolute no 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 there were three candidates guys oh okay all right <laughs> okay. A, a close second I got a, yeah a close second to the second <laughs> uh, got absolutely clobbered and and then the guy who I lost to went on to suffer the greatest statewide defeat in Minnesota history God so bless I'm him the wow. loser to the biggest loser but for the grace of God go you but for the gr- oh my goodness <laughs> the best thing ever happened to me is not winning that race <laughs> <laughs> and I got I got clobbered but uh so yeah I ran for Senate and it was a Useful exercise in humility. Would you well, do it again? <laughs> would you run again? Would I? I would never say. I mean, I would never close any doors. Sure. But I, I, I what I've, I'm so wonderfully liberated from the calculation. Do you know what I mean? Like sure. most people who are politically minded are like, well, maybe two years from now, maybe I need to move to this district, or I got to set this up. Yeah. It's like once you let go of that. Then you can come on TV and say whatever you think yeah. and exactly how you feel. Be yourself. And be yourself. 
which is way better TV anyway. Yeah. And I think sets in the world we live in, that's what people are looking for anyway. Be sure. authentic about who you are. And then if God opens a door or closes a door, then walk through it. Yep. And that's another chapter of life. So I would never say no, but I am so happy not even but thinking about it. It's a brutal world, Pete. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. like it, you really go in and fight hard and the rhetoric, the passion, the division. I mean, has it gone too too far? Uh, I think it's only going to go further, to be honest with really? you. Yeah, I, I think I think we've seen more divisive times in our nation, uh, civil wars and things like right. that. But I don't know that our politics have ever been this fundamentally broken. Right. Just at a place where mom and dad don't agree. It feels like they have irreconcilable differences. <laughs> like we're going to see a counselor. Yeah. What com- The kids are like, what happens next, yeah. guys? Yeah. And I- I'm not saying our nation's going to get divorced. But it doesn't feel like we agree on any fundamental issues, even remotely. But it's and not we, only that piece. Like you can't even give another point of view without feeling a threat in some cases of violence and impugning of the motives. It's yes. like you're you're making that argument because you're hateful or you're racist or you're this. Well, how, you can't even talk in that case, which mm. is why I, I've lost all hope that there'll be some bipartisan solution other than spending money on infrastructure and things like that, which Republicans and Democrats are always good at doing. Right. Uh, so I, I, I think that it's only going to get more divisive. And the choice I asked this question to Mark Levin, a couple of other people recently. Mm. So where does this end? He said one side wins and the other loses. Right. I mean, you, that's, that's that's the sport we're in right now in politics. And I think Trump has taught Republicans how to actually fight and win. Oh, yeah. And and so if I. If you were to step into the political arena, you have to do it by saying, this is who I am. This is my background. I'm not a perfect person, and neither are you, and I'm here to win. And if you want to win, let's go. Yeah, bring it on. Bring it on. But otherwise, I'm not going to play this, well, this constituency needs this, which is why I still can't stand candidates. And I talk to them all the time. Mm. They come up to me and say, well, I live in a place where Trump's just – they don't like the tweets, and so I've got to hit a middle ground. It's like people are over Uh, that. Are you in for the fight mm -hmm. or not? Right. And that's a good point. And the problem is – you mentioned something just a few minutes ago. If you're a Trump supporter, you are instantly racist. And xenophobic and all of these things, the deplorables, as Hillary yep. Clinton famously dubbed Trump supporters. And it's it's an image that's hard to break on the other side of, of, of the aisle because that's instantly who you are. It's the same in the UK, Nigel Farage. If you're a Farage yes. supporter, you're a right supremacist, you you know, you are racist, you're a bigot, and shame on you. Yeah. And it's so unfair because a lot of really good people do not fit any of those, you know, labels, and yet they do believe in the principles being put forward by your Donald Trumps and your Nigel Farages. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, I don't know how you get past it other than, you know, call me whatever you want. I know what I believe. And if I was to walk up to you and say, I think people should speak English. I think that's no. part of becoming, it's not because I think, you know, people crossing the border are incapable or I don't like them. Right. It's that national fabrics are kept together, social contracts right. by people communicating together with each right. other. That is still important today. Yeah. And, but we, to me, the biggest battleground we face on all of these fronts is education, is public school systems. Yeah. Because I think I went to a public school in Minnesota where the cultural residue of my community was patriotism and faith mm-hmm. and generally conservative Had a big ideals. impact on you. It did, big time. But it was, you would almost absorb it by osmosis through your public institutions, the public mm-hmm. schools. I mm-hmm. bet most of the main teachers were Democrats. I bet most of them, I don't know what they, who they voted for, right. but there was cultural reinforcement. And I think a lot of parents my age or other, a little bit older assume that their public schools are the same way. And they're not. And they're not. It's, some, it's kind of like, uh, you know, the old adage, people uh, hate Congress, but they love their congressmen. 
Yeah. That same thing is at play with public schools. Mm-hmm. They don't like um, you know, Common Core and public schools. Mm-hmm. But I, my public school's got a shiny new gym, and I know the principal. He's a nice guy. And so they, they yeah. apologize for this institution that's poisoning the minds of their kids. Yeah. They, they're telling them that their gender is fluid, that socialism is great, that global warming is the biggest thing they fight, that all of our founders are only slave owners mm-hmm. defined by their sins. Yes. And that's what we're pumping out of these institutions. And that's how you lose your country. Mm-hmm. Because they don't say the pledge. They don't revere, you know, Veterans Day is not any more important. It's actually Earth Day. changed a remarkable pace when you think remarkable. about it. Remarkable. Oh yeah. I mean, when honestly, I was in, when I was in school, it's it happened like right that. under our uh-huh. noses. When I was in school, it was exactly what you said. It's you know, it's your culture was in there, but mm. it was it was not a place. I never had a teacher preach about their social opinions, their mm. political opinions. I w- I was fortunate to go to school where you were taught something, but also the kids I knew that didn't went to other schools weren't preached anything mm. now you hear it every day you hear these uh, teachers telling their kids that they can't write about that that their hero is president trump but you they can't can write about anyone else that's why I, I, a friend of mine i live in uh, in homedale uh new jersey and mm. and a high schooler there was recently got in trouble on and we had him on fox and friends because he wore yeah. a shirt that said make homedale great again and he ran kind of uh, and he mm-hmm. but he also was discriminated against didn't make national honor society because he was a conservative and all the evidence it's is clear he horrible. started something called High Schoolers for Freedom, which is effectively a Charlie Kirk turning point yeah, type thing yeah. focused on high schoolers to say, why can't I wear yeah. a MAGA hat to school or a Second Amendment T-shirt? Or why can't I write an essay about right. this or that? Because the indoctrination is yeah, all Isn't that great? They'll allow a First Amendment T-shirt, but not a Second Amendment <laughs> T-shirt. Uh-huh. And what are they so frightened about? What is a hat? How can a hat be so yeah. dangerous and so horrible? Take it off right away. Mm-hmm. You read about these stories almost daily of someone wearing a... Uh, a MAGA hat in a restaurant or wherever, and it creates a fight. Because political correctness is their most potent weapon. And mm-hmm. that's why Trump is so dangerous, because he's going at political correct. Because if, if, if you control the speech, you control mm-hmm. everything. If I can control what you can say and what you can wear and what's socially acceptable, I choose what words you can say. Now you can't say him or her, he or she. You control all that and you start to dilute the basic constructs of who we are. Right. So that's why when Trump stands up and says, no, I'm going to call her Pocahontas, their minds explode. They do. Because he's not playing by all those rules. Right, right. I I remember in my old media law class in college, I'm no lawyer, but I remember in the class they said... Time, place, and manners, how they have to measure if, some, if you can put these words out and pe- if people have an argument to take it down, right? So the time, right? People are more sensitive now than ever. The place, if you wear a hat in a place where you're outnumbered mm-hmm. by liberals to conservatives or Trump haters to Trump supporters, mm-hmm. that's a dangerous place. And the manner, if you wear it in an, outway, in, in an outward way, that's, they think that they have a reason that to shut down your First Amendment speech. But- it's well, just, look at I, just, your rights are going out the door. Just look at Berkeley. I just <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness! Once a week we do a story out of Berkeley where mm-hmm. a conservative gets beaten up for for <laughs> you get a for, fist for daring <laughs> to to espouse conservative views. It's just fascinating to me. I just can't understand what are they so afraid about? Another I, point of view? Come on! I think they're afraid of losing their grip of that of the almost in total indoctrination they have today. And I think a lot of these professors believe the Kool Aid they're spewing. I mean, they they mm-hmm. they believe that they care more than you because you don't want to redistribute and you don't. I, I no. also think there's an investment in when you talk about identity politics. Like we used to be, our identities used to be part of who we are, but not define who we are. Mm-hmm. And when you go to higher education, or at least that's how I was taught. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. It hasn't always been that way in our country. We've had plenty of iterations of of flaws in that. Sure. But I was taught to see past someone's color of their skin. 
mm-hmm. understand them as an individual, factor in the fact that they may have had a different experience. Right. But we ultimately we agree on more than we disagree on, especially if we're Americans. Right. right. Well, now you've got minority studies departments, women's studies department, gender studies department, African-American yep. studies department. And so what you end up doing is you, you go to college and study a certain perspective, yeah. yep. certain view, which should be included as part of it, but shouldn't just be the only thing you're focusing right. on. Just but, creates division. But exactly. But their criticism is, sorry, uh, old white men wrote the history of Western civilization, right. so we've been going through your one view for our whole lives. And so I, I actually can understand their intellectual argument. Mm-hmm. I just don't think it contributes to cohesiveness as a country. We could not. do both without mm-hmm. saying— Oh, no, they want to wipe it out. They want to wipe it out. Mm-hmm. And you can do both when we're not doing both. They're, they're in the process of pushing it out yeah. while advancing a sort of identity-based yeah, their, their argument politics. Is that, like, old white men wrote, wrote the history, so that— so now history's invalid. We can't look at it. But what's wrong with that person's point of view? It's because it's not their point of view. You yeah. Know? I think it's okay to study the history through how peop- everyone experienced it. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine being a— But you a, can't rewrite it. You mm-hmm. can't rewrite it. Imagine being a slave in the 1700s. I mean, I can't no. imagine. It's no. horrific. Yeah. But you also can't rewrite it. When you erase it, you don't learn from it. And it doesn't mean that everything that that person ever did— is is invaluable or right. is is to be discounted. I mean right. Thomas Jefferson's a perfect example. One of the most brilliant political minds ever wrote the Declaration of Independence. Uh basically the expression of freedom of religion in our country. Right. Uh and they want to wipe him they want to get rid of his name yep. off of statues Take and institutions. Down the statues be- everything. Because he did something that was terrible in that time that everyone did. Yeah. It's it's really disturbing and so I I, I I think Trump represents – he's a blunt force instrument against what was a, like, <laughs> inevitable decline. Yes, yes. And they hate it. So the the existential question is, is he the beginning of a renewal mm-hmm. or is he the last gasp of, a, of an older generation of Americans who still have power at the ballot box because they still vote? We're talking right. 60, 70, 80-year-old people, but they don't have power – in our cultural institutions, or our high schools, or our colleges, or our movies, so in or other our words, churches. that generation dies off essentially, and then yeah. the generations that come behind when have they, had a whole different experience and uh, education. Correct. I mean, Abraham Lincoln once said, "The philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation becomes the philosophy of government in the next." Uh-huh. He's right. It's, it's an interesting, mm-hmm. but it's also mortifying yes. when you think about all these kids that believe they're global citizens before they're American. Don't citizens. you think, though, the kids generally, you know, was it? Yeah, if you're not a socialist when you're young, you don't have a yeah. heart, and if you're not a Republican yeah. or a conservative when you're older, you don't have a brain. I think there's a little bit of that. I think everyone I think goes through a process. Mm-hmm. When you're younger, you're idealistic. When a candidate says free everything, free uh, medicine, uh, free uh, education, free, you name it, we'll give it to you for free. Yep. It's very compelling. Yeah. I'm like, okay, if I'm a young kid, has no experience in the world, had to pay bills, it sounds great. It just takes so much time to undo the indoctrination. I know, it just start I in know. the beginning. And I'm so that's where I think as conservatives, we have to reexamine. Uh, public schools, we have to look at homeschooling, we have to look at starting our own schools, we have yeah. to look at private schools and charter vouchers, schools, yeah. charter schools, and just sort of saying government-run public schools are are failing our civic culture. Right. And, frankly, tons of kids trapped in failing schools that they can't get out of, mostly in Correct. inner cities. Mm-hmm. And make that a, a huge cause. I would love to see Trump talk more about that. He does on the margins, but it's a big so issue. So do you think uh, Donald Trump has a very good shot of getting reelected? Yes, Yes, I mean, I, I what was it? I'm going to steal a line from Ed Henry, which I'm going to. This is the only time I'm going <laughs> to cite him. Uh, but today, you saw Mueller today. He was yeah. 
his thing. And and Ed goes, well, that's his, that's the insurance policy. I said, because meaning it'll it'll lead to impeachment. This is going to yeah. lead to the Dems trying to impeach. Yes, and Ed yes. goes, well, this is the insurance policy. I mean, you mean Peter Strzok's insurance policy? Mm. No, he goes, an insurance policy. This will ensure that Trump gets reelected. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of true. If they go yeah. for yes. impeachment, what it seems like they can't resist. They can't. It's, so such they got. An, it's such an overreach. And. You know, we were reacting in real time to the yeah. Mueller, and the more it kind of sinks in, yes. and the more you see the reactions, you start to realize, yes, both sides can take something from it, but it means a lot more to one side than the other. It opens the door. It for opens the, the door, and I don't know how they don't push it through. They got nothing they will. else to talk they about. Will. They will. They will. And they'll say we did our part, and yep. they'll send it to the Senate where the Republicans are defending, you know, their mm-hmm. their president. Blah, 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 blah. And uh, and we'll have a big old fight in 2020, and Trump will get reelected because the economy also matters, and it's in it's gangbusters. And so. who's the Democrats got right now that you think give him a good run for his money? I can't mm-hmm. see anyone, to be honest with you. But someone may come <laughs> out of the someone may come out of the woodwork between now and then. But well, Joe you know. Biden is literally in the woodwork right now. He's running for president. <laughs> but where is he? You don't know. <laughs> he's hiding. He's hiding. I mean, he's still point. He's going to have to answer a question. I don't know if he. Re- I, I still questions. I don't know if he really wanted to run, or if he was pushed to run. I think that's yet to be seen. Yeah, I mean, you know? I'd want to go up against Donald Trump. Nobody, He's a buzzsaw. Yeah. And I think, I think Trump, <laughs> I think Trump's always been reluctant. But then President Trump was like, you know, this is my time to, and he felt that he was called to do it now. So, I, but I think it's like the difference between when President Trump thought about Florida with the idea years ago. Oh, it sounds good. But he I don't used know to come I on. I, I used to be on Imus, and uh-huh. he used to come on Imus all the time. Donald Trump and Imus was Did, always time. Donald. Did those tapes ever come yeah. out? Yeah. <laughs> when are you going to run for president? When are you going to run for president? You know, the typical yeah. honest thing. I don't, no, no, I don't see that in my future. And then towards the end yeah. of that, he would say, never say never, Mr. Imus. Yes. Yeah, boy, that's what I'm saying. Even back then. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He, it seems like back then he was interested, but he didn't do it. And I think, right. but then he got called. I feel like Joe Biden, I'm purely speculating, but I just have that feeling that he's more at that earlier Trump phase where it's like, it sounds cool to be president, but I don't know if I want A little late for the early phase. But now I think too many people want him to run. I mean, he's got pushed it. The party needs him to run. Because he's supposedly more moderate, but then he's Mm -hmm. stuck between the young far left uh, of the party. It's an absolute mess. Nancy Pelosi is like, seems befuddled all the time these days. Yeah. Do we go for impeachment? Should I go for it? I think she's going to be pressured mm-hmm. into it. I do. I think she is, but too. But bottom line is, who of the candidates out there right now set you alight? I mean, I think Trump will eat them alive. Mm-hmm. I really do. I, I agree think, with you. I don't think anybody. Biden, the name recognition, Bernie Sanders, the name recognition. I mean, Bernie Sanders. I mean, you know, but it's the name I, recognition. I wouldn't sleep right? on Bernie. I no. really mean that. I, yeah. I would still, if I had to bet money right now, I'd still put it on Bernie. Because yeah. I think a lot of his support is still dispersed. Elizabeth Warren, even Buttigieg, yeah. you know, is is he started out as a moderate, but he's an old school yeah, lefty. Yeah, yeah. He is. All of that could consolidate to him, and I think Biden. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is Biden's win, uh, is is likelihood of being able to beat Trump. But once he gets in debates and fumbles mm-hmm. a little bit yes. and asks some questions and he crosses the base, yep. he's more vulnerable than people think. Yeah. Oh. And, so. I, and the, all these other little minor candidates are going to spend so much time and money attacking him. Digging up dirt on him. We know there's dirt on him. You know, on, Who, on Biden. On Biden. Oh, and he's not plagiarism Trump. is a big one. And yeah, yeah. So there's going to be a lot of stuff that they're going to be attacking him. And so there might just be enough infighting to get him yeah, out before probably. the general election. 
You know, and he's not Trump. He's not that good. No, he's not. If he was that good, he would have won the other two times you That's ran. That's exactly right. So, we'll all right. See. Well, listen, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Pete guys. Hexeth. You're a fascinating character. You may be running for office again somewhere down the <laughs> that road. That is not the you headline. You heard it here from first. 2024? Not the headline from this. <laughs> but we shall see. Happily employed at Fox News Channel for the very foreseeable future. <laughs> very good. Well, thanks, Pete, hey, thank so you. much for being here. And thanks, everyone, for listening here. in. We'll see you back here next time. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.